Welcome back to the Multimedia Shelf Oddlings. My name is Ambi, and the movie I'm feeling like today is Cat People Invasion from Mars, the 1973 cult classic. Hmm, good one. And I'm Serafina, and the movie I'm feeling like today is 47 Meters Deep in Your Mom. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Well. Um, and uh, I guess that means I'm eerie. And uh, my movie is Rude Pigeon Part 5. That's just because my day's been fucking rude. I don't know about you guys, but (laughs) it's Monday. It's offensive. The Part 5 really does some heavy lifting there, for sure. I want to know what the other four parts consisted of. No, you do not. You don't want to hear about that. Okay. Well, before we get started today, we did want to talk about some cool stuff going on in the horror world. Uh, one of those things being Evil Dead Rise. You guys haven't seen it yet, have you? Nope. Okay, well, uh, have you guys seen any of the Evil Dead franchise? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay, that's good at least. Well, it's very good. Um, I went to see it in theater because, as we have said in the past, I do enjoy me seeing a good uh, horror movie in theater. I love the atmosphere, uh, and it was very good. And, of course, I'm always Googling interesting facts afterwards, and um, most of it is practical effects. And oh, really? they really said, hey, Sam Raimi, here's money, please make things happen, and, and they really did do the damn thing. Um, it that. looks fucking incredible. Me too. I'm so happy that they stayed true to the Evil Dead franchise and chose to do practical effects in 2023. I'm hoping that that movie and Terrifier 2, who both have done practical effects and both were like immediately loved, um, kind of proves to people that that's what we want. So Yeah, definitely could help influence the industry. Yes. I'm glad that you liked it. I know that you were really looking forward to it. Yes, and um, it's it's worth it for sure. So if, if I think it's still in theaters now, so definitely go see it. It's it's worth worth the time. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that they are coming out with a Texas Chainsaw Massacre asymmetrical horror survival game. Which, for those of you who play Dead by Daylight, that will sound mm-hmm. familiar because it's basically a Dead by Daylight clone, but in the like Texas Chainsaw Massacre universe. And it comes out in August. But what they did for marketing was they've made a channel on YouTube called Lo-Fi Leatherface. (laughs) And it's literally Leatherface, like, chopping meat. And, like, it's a live channel. Like, you know, Lo-Fi Girl, but Mm -hmm. Lo-Fi Leatherface. That's amazing. That's amazing. Oh, it's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Well, cool. That sounds interesting. Are you playing on streaming that? I might. I might. Um, I'm definitely going to play it for sure. I love Dead by Daylight, so anything set in a universe that I already kind of know and love would be super cool. So yeah, I probably will end up streaming it. Dead by Daylight is a blast. Yes, it's it's so much fun. Yeah, it's a great game. So speaking of movies that use practical effects and also that I had Googled trivia... Obviously, just go on like IMDb and look at their trivia section. Um, I finally watched Barbarian. Not great. I mean, it was a movie. Don't get yeah. me wrong. It was a movie. We No one can deny it was, it was a motion movie. picture. It was a movie. It was a film that was on my television for a long time. Um, <laughs> it was 
a movie. There's not, it was, um, it was not great. There was a lot of hype over it for a long time, but I just think that anything Bill Skarsgård is in, like, it's a lot of hype, which I understand that because he's a cool actor and all of that. And the whole time, the marketing made you believe that, like, he was the bad guy. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, um, spoiler alert, but, like, he gets just fucking murdered so quickly. <laughs> yeah, he's not in the movie well, for Well, now long. I'll never watch the movie. Ugh. That's oh, bullshit. Damn. Yeah, you will. <laughs> but Well, you shouldn't. But also, he was an executive producer in it, so I think that, like, he kind of just used his clout, maybe, to, like, get the movie going or something. Like, there was a lot of potential. There was a lot of potential. And then it just got... It just got really weird and odd, and it never recovered, I feel like. Is this elevated horror, and I'm just too stupid to understand? Is that? I don't... I think it was, like, trying to make a commentary on society. Yeah, so I have a question, because I've never seen this. Okay. Yeah. But is this one of those movies where, like, they think they're doing something avant-garde and, like, special, and then you're just like, mm, no... No. You know, I could see that vibe, but the thing is that a lot of people did think it was good. Like, that's the thing really that's so confusing. It didn't really seem avant-garde. Like, there was no, like, interesting cinematography. The storyline's not even that different to anything you've ever heard before. I think they were just trying to, like, maybe do, like, a throwback to, like, a creature feature, but, like, give the creature a backstory. Okay. Like, make because at the end of the movie, you're like weirdly kind of empathizing with the creature. So, is it one of those no thoughts, just spook movies? No, that's no. the problem. No. If it yeah. was, I think it would have been enjoyable, but it's like trying to make you do a think, but you're not quite sure what you're supposed to be thinking about. Is my yeah. opinion. Like, Gary's like, never... I'm just thinking about the next movie I'm gonna watch. This is right. awful. <laughs> Get me out of here. And I yeah. did see that in theaters too. So. It, like, never recovers. And, like, the end no. credits come so quickly that you're like, wait, where where does any of this end up? Like, the real villain of the whole thing does not have a satisfying ending in any certain way. Okay. And also, it's basically, like, I'm just going to spoil, like, the whole goddamn thing. But, like, it, it was basically a rapist finds out that this other person's a rapist. And then that original Stop. rapist shoots himself. Oh. And like that's the end. Like I mean, I'm a fan of all rapists dying. I mean, yeah. amen. Yeah. Amen. But it makes you like it's almost like there's a point in the movie and then they fix it later, but there's a point in the movie where it's like, is this movie trying to show you like the hierarchy of rapists? It's like, look, he's not that bad. God, that's awful. I really it hope was so but then he like proves himself to be like an actually bad person through the whole uh -huh. thing. Like, and that's fine or whatever. But like it I think it was trying to, like, in a weird way, be a good for her movie. But if it was actually a good for her movie, the creature that the, like, OG rapist who kills himself, he should have gotten killed by that creature. A hundred percent. Yeah, I would agree. Then at that. least it would have been like, oh, this makes sense. And also this person's, like, this creature's, like, really threatening and, like, actually has all that. Like, but there was none of that. So it was just really weird. So if you were somebody who enjoyed The Barbarian... And maybe we're all looking too deep into it and it is a no think movie and you should just enjoy the practical effects and like all of this stuff. Please yeah. let us know. Cause like maybe I need those people to tell me what the movie's about. <laughs> I think yeah, that's yeah. what I need. Tell me what the plot is. I would just yeah. like to know the plot. 
You guys just keep saying rapist, and I keep thinking of when he says rapist, and he's like, there's only one thing worse than a rapist. A child. A child. A child. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It just, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's also kind of maybe the plot. (laughs) True. That's true. It's kind of weird. I don't know. So, yeah, let us know what you think. But I think with that, let's get into a movie that's actually good. Because I enjoyed the hell out of our movie today. I'm excited. Okay. All right. So today we are talking about the Rob Reiner directed movie, Misery, based off of the Stephen King novel. And it is a 10 out of 10, 12 out of 10, 15 out of 10, 20 out of 10. It's it's just, I don't. I read this novel when I was I was 13. It was like on my grandmother's bookcase. I had like a horrible case of the flu. My parents were out of town for the week. And so I was just bored and I read this book and I was fascinated by it. And I like definitely should not have been reading that book at 13, but 13 is not that young. Um, (laughs) And then like a couple years later, I found out it was a movie and I was like, ah, and when I was a child, I don't know what you would call this. Um, I used to obsessively consume things from the ages of like, or from the grades of sixth grade to eighth grade. I read nothing but the Harry Potter series. Uh, sorry, I know, disgusting. Um, literally, start to finish would restart it, start to finish, restart it. I watched Misery probably a solid 150 to 200 times since I've been like 15 years old. And I'm 26. When you, when you were a kid? No, no, like, no. So from, from the age of 50, uh, well, yeah, I no, guess, right. I, I mean, like, it's you it's not nearly as bad these days, though. Okay. I was like, like I still do it. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I still do it, but it's not nearly as bad. Anyways. Um, so let me just pull up trusty dusty safari here, and then we'll start with a bad review that we found together as a group. And, uh, it's something like, it's really not that crazy. So these people on Rotten Tomatoes gave this movie a half star review and they said too suspenseful and too scary. Kathy Bates is a trip in the film. Fuck that hoe. that's 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 that was their opinion um have you ever been so good at your job that someone goes actually fuck that hoe like what (laughs) um and then this one is like five stars um i just find it kind of funny it says while i don't know anyone that does as many batshit crazy things as infamous annie this movie might have more relevance now with the internet that it probably did back then Mm-hmm. Or maybe we are just more aware of these crazy fans now because of the internet. Either way, Annie in a bonnet. I'm not. I don't know. There's something cute about her. Let me get her number. <laughs> like, okay. She's. They're trying to fuck that hoe. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, so yeah. So um, that that's kind of a couple reviews. And uh, I don't know if you two would like to give your feedback on what you guys thought. That review is funny because for me. I liked this movie. I would give it probably an eight or nine just because it's an older movie and I don't have the, um, you know, like the childhood or the teenagehood love for it. I had never seen it before you had recommended it, which is kind of surprising because I love Kathy Bates more than anything. I love um, her. But I, the whole time I was watching it, I was like, this is Parasocial 101. Like, this is the top of the top crazy fan and it was it was interesting to watch. It was good. I also think that James Can was an interesting choice. And I, I did read some trivia 
that the role had been offered to a bunch of other people and everyone else turned it down and he was the only one. But I will tell you the surprise of me knowing that this movie is about a crazed fan obsessed with an author and then James Can showed up. I was like, wait, <laughs> I was like, he doesn't he doesn't even have Riz. Like, what do you mean? Like, I'm so confused. Nah, I thought he was kind of cute. OK, well. <laughs> there you go one person's trash no i'm just kidding um, <laughs> but the whole time i was like that's just the dad from seventh heaven <laughs> like that's all i could think about was like that weird christian show that was on like abc like my entire childhood i was like what are you doing here sir and i actually exactly yeah i actually thought that he did a great job i thought he was a wonderful actor i thought it was good it was just so out of place because you know you're expecting someone maybe like a little swaggier, like a little more charming. It's like, nah, it's James Can dog. <laughs> but yeah, overall, I really liked it. I've never read the book, so I can't give a comparison. But the movie was good. I was kind of mad I had never seen it before. It was it was a fun watch. Awesome. I am also going to give this movie like an 8 out of 10. I like older movies, so it's kind of my bag. However, comma... I kind of felt like this went on for a really long time and like halfway through the movie you got the gist of what was happening and it could have been just a smidge yeah. shorter. That's that's kind of my only complaint. But I, I can't that. go below an eight yeah. because motherfucking Kathy Bates is up in this shit. And <laughs> if I give this movie anything under an eight, it would be disrespecting an absolute fucking queen. So <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna go with eight. I enjoyed it overall. I love the cop character and his wife. I think Just that they uh, added a lot, and I really, really enjoyed them. Yeah, his wife are just them. <laughs> yeah, they're so <laughs> funny and so cute. Yeah, I really enjoyed them, and also there's a pig in this movie, and I love pigs. They're so cute. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can kind of agree uh, about your statement about the length, and then that's that's part of the reason why I was so nervous about picking this movie because, like. In Jennifer's body and in Heather's, it's a very like diverse, spread out movie, and we're going to be talking a lot about two people in one bedroom, like for this <laughs> yep. entire yeah. show. And yeah. so I was just very nervous. I was like, uh, "Is this going to bore people?" So like, fingers crossed, it doesn't. But that that was a concern I had. Um, so I completely get your point there. I think the length though is kind of part of the experience of watching it because the entire time you're like all right dude do something like all right like let's go let's do something but like it gives such a good this is gonna take forever this is like you you start to go crazy like waiting for something to happen just like he did so i kind of almost think it adds to it in a way too in a weird way you're like can somebody die already or something (laughs) just take out that (laughs) hoe fuck that hoe you know what i'm saying (laughs) Uh, she would love that, but um, true. So you're absolutely right. James Con was not the original choice by a long shot to play the role of Paul Sheldon, and I did pull some factoids before we start getting into the film. So these were some names of possible Paul Sheldons: uh, Jack Nicholson, who was a number one choice. Obviously, okay. he had been a star in The Shining, mm-hmm. um, and he basically said after doing one King film, he would never do another King film as long as he lived. Do you so blame him? Out of my no, not at all. Not at all. Uh, the cast of The Shining was tortured. That that movie is cursed. Yeah. That movie yeah. is cursed. Are you guys ever going to talk about the Wizard of Oz curse, by the way? 
It Ooh, is yeah, on we... my yeah. We've talked. We yeah. actually talked about it. I think in the cursed my cursed films episode when I covered The Exorcist because The Wizard of Oz is included in that. Yeah, I remember you bringing it up. But are you ever gonna do like a? You know what? This yeah, is not really movie. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah, we'll ADHD. <laughs> so here's an interesting one. It was offered to Morgan Freeman, which mm-hmm. oh, interesting, okay. right? Robert De Niro, Harrison Ford, Al Pacino, Bruce Willis, Dustin Hoffman, and Nicolas Cage. Oh, we Nikki love the Nick Cage. Cage. Big, big, big A-list actors. Um, yeah. We're all offered this role, and it went to my boy, James Caan. <laughs> oh, is that how you pronounce his name? Sorry about earlier, guys. Oh, I don't care. I don't know the exact pronunciation. Um, but I watched this guy on YouTube who makes fun of him, and he, he calls him James Caan, so that's just kind of what I roll with. I believe it. So Kathy Bates was the actual um, the casting director's original choice for Annie Wilkes. He wanted her yeah. very badly, but a couple other names that were thrown around: Bette Midler. Hmm. Okay, I could see that. Angelica Houston or Huston, probably Huston. Jessica Houston. Lang and Barbara oh. Streisand. Oh, Jessica Lang, bro. Yeah. Yeah. So those are some names floated around, but Kathy was their first choice. And Kathy Bates had never starred in like a motion picture before. She was a massively well-known Broadway star at the time. Yeah. Um, really well-known actress. But uh, yeah, she this was her first role in a Hollywood movie. Um, it was often said on set that Kathy <laughs> and James Caan, like, oh yeah. Kathy and James Caan, like, could not see at each other uh, because um, Kathy was used to Broadway, was used to rehearsing 24-7. And James Caan believed in, like, as little practice as possible. And so they kind of had to find, like, a middle ground. And it got to a point, I guess, where Kathy Bates started acting so weird on and off set that Rob Reiner had to pull her aside and be like, look, you need to leave Annie Wilkes whenever you're off a set. Like, you're you're Mm -hmm. starting to method act, and we don't like this. (laughs) Apparently, she was becoming, like, Annie Wilkes to an extent. Very kind of creepy and and off-puttish, or put-offish. Because of stress she was having from the film. So I don't know. I found that interesting. That is interesting. So the creators of the film describe Wilkes as a specifically sick person, not an all-around monster. The goal wasn't to portray her as some crazy psychopath, but was to kind of put focus onto a specific mental illness, which is bipolar disorder and another one, um, and also chronic depression. So mm-hmm. it was meant to be this is more... A mentally sick person that probably does mean well, but she's also a little psychotic <laughs> rather than just being an all-around like killer monster. And then in 1991, Kathy Bates became the first woman to win an Oscar for Best Actress in a Horror or Thriller Film. So this is our little horror thing. So big round of applause for Kathy Bates for being the first woman to do it. That, that was exciting. Yeah, she deserved it. I mean, truly. Yeah. So that's really all the little fact toys I have before we like get right into the movie. Did you guys have anything else you wanted to I just now I'm imagining Jessica Lange playing yeah. like a sexy Annie Wilkes. <laughs> yeah, because like, does she do anything that isn't sexy? That's right. Like her riz is unstoppable. So imagine like Jessica <laughs> and like <laughs> Nick Cage. Like that movie would the tone would be so different. I know. Just saying, I said Jessica Lange and Erie went kind of quiet. I'm just like, yeah, she's really just like Jessica Langland over there. I love I mean, Jessica Lange, dude. Yeah, how could you not? <laughs> so our movie starts off with our main guy, Paul Sheldon, finishing off a book series that he's the author of. Uh, this is a new book off of his standoff novelization series of Misery. And then we see him pop open a bottle of champagne, smokes a cigarette, and this will become a little more relevant later on. Um 
in the film. And I kind of like the script bag that he has. I mean, I kind of like yeah. the way he writes the end at the end of a script, you know, instead of using a typewriter, he just writes it in his pen. I don't know why, just a little bit of touch that I liked there. So next we see him get into an old Mustang, I and mean, then it gets all corny. He's like throwing a snowball on a tree, and then says, still got it. Like we're fucking 1980s. So awkward. <laughs> it's like, so oh. awkward. That's what I'm saying, Rizless. This man is Rizless. <laughs> right, and then he drives across a slowing mountainscape to the song Shotgun by J.R. Walker and the All-Stars. That song is a bop. Mm-hmm. Great song. But as he's driving, we start to notice things are getting more snowy. The drive starting to become more treacherous. And then Paul kind of loses control. And then he does like the worst thing possible you could do when losing control on snow and ice. He slams on his brakes. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Not the smartest man. The whole time I was like, stop. Turn around. What are you doing? Get some help. Seek, seek shelter. <laughs> um, so one thing I notice is like he's so very concerned about that manuscript bag. He's starting to lose control. The car is starting to spin and he like reaches over and grabs that bag for dear life and just like clutches it into himself. Yeah, he's more worried about the script. Yeah, yeah it's his newborn it, baby. It's exactly. his money. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I just thought it was like, you know, I just found it ironic that all this trouble starts, you know, once he finally like ends his big book series and starts a new one and all he can think about is just like ah new book i'm crashing i'm dying like can't lose this like he's just i don't know it was <laughs> so he does a couple flips and he lands top side down and settles in for a nice snowy nap you know mm -hmm. nice and insulated in his little mustang uh and then we get a flashback to when paul sheldon finds an old manuscript bag and he says he kept the first book misery he ever wrote in it then he begins to write his new book series and puts in that same bag. So I don't know. I thought that was cool symbolism. So this is when we find out that Paul isn't thrilled about the Misery series as he argues with his publicist. And he says, quote, if I can make this work, talk about his new book series, if I can make this work, I might just have something I can write on my tombstone. So you can tell like he doesn't like, I don't know, he's like that kind of artist that even though he got something he got really famous for, is very reluctant to embrace it. He's sick of it. He wants to do something new. He doesn't just want to be known for Misery. So. Well, also and he like on the he wrote like eight fucking books for that series. I'm sure he's like fucking tired of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, he doesn't. Yeah, it, it was like it was interesting how set up, how quickly he didn't want to be defined by this. Like he felt like a sellout. Yeah, and I think it's, it's interesting that like he got eight books deep into the series. It was like I can't do this anymore. But like, <laughs> could you have done other projects in between, my guy? Like, like. My boy George R. R. Martin, he is unbothered. Oh my mm -hmm. god, don't fucking bring that into this. <laughs> well, also, this this movie, this book is written by Stephen King. It's like, that's literally the man who puts out like 90 books right. in like the a decade. Of writing bullshit. Like, quite literally. <laughs> I love you, Mr. King, please don't hate me, but facts, sorry. <laughs> Yo, some of his, some of his shit's a little like, Stephen, what, uh, what are we doing here, buddy? What, I what love him so much. Like, he's contributed so much to the fucking horror community, but Jesus Christ, man, he doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. <laughs> I because agree. you get that bag, you know? Yeah. You just write things to write things, get the bag. But, you know, some some of us have to have artistic integrity, I guess. And it almost killed him. He, Stephen King's just like, the floor ate her alive. Oh, this is so good. <laughs> They're going to love this. <laughs> They're going to eat this shit up, dog. Uh, so then we come back uh, to present time and we see the flipped over car and we see a beat up looking Paul Sheldon still clutching onto <laughs> the manuscript bag for dear life. 
um, we see a crowbar forcing the door open, and then we see some like unknown hands, this unknown person drag Sheldon out of the car. Uh, they begin to give a mouth-to-mouth CPR, and then this person also grabs his stuff, so the manuscript bag, Paul, and then we kind of see them carry him off. So at this point, you know, you're not sure what's going on. It's clear Paul's alive. It's really all you know. So then all of a sudden, we see Paul Sheldon kind of laying down, eyes closed. They start to open. Everything's blurry, starting to come to. And we hear, I'm your number one fan. Mm. There's nothing to worry about, which I absolutely... Have you guys seen when Family Guy did, like, the Stephen King adaptations? No. Mm, no, I haven't. They do a whole episode, Stewie's Kathy Bates. It's hysterical. Um, <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> so yeah, she says, I'm your number one fan. There's nothing to worry about. And then Kathy motherfucking Bates, the star of the show, comes onto the screen. Oh, the queen. Paul is looking rough, and we find out he's been unconscious for two days. We find out that the unknown savior is Nurse Annie Wilkes. She has him hooked up to an IV and administers him pills. What I love about this scene is like. Annie Wilkes genuinely just looks and sounds like this nice, sweet hospital nurse. Like she has Paul set up real nicely. She just has this sweet tone to her voice, this nice smile. And then she says, I'm your number one fan. And like it gives me the chills every time I hear that line. I absolutely love it. She's too yeah. nice. That's the problem. You can tell you're like, oh, something is not right here. Yeah. Did you think like... that like right away? Oh, yeah. Immediately. I was yeah, like, me too. This is really sus. Like, um, I don't know. My... My dumbass kid self was like, "Oh, thank God, <laughs> <laughs> he was saved. <laughs> he was saved by his number one fan." No, to me, I was like, "She's as sweet as cyanide, baby. Get the hell out of there." Yep. Oh, I like that line. Sweet I think. Um. So later, we find out that the pills are painkillers, and it seems that uh, or uh, and Paul inquires to Annie as to why he's not being brought to a hospital, and she tells him it's because the blizzard was too severe. And so severe, but even all the phone lines are down. And so she kind of tells him, like, you know, I can't really do much right now. I kind of did the best I could for you. So a short transition later, we get a gorgeous shot. I just want to say that, like, the scene transitions where we're looking at, like, the Colorado mountains. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, shout out to Stephen King for doing something outside of the state of Maine. All right? We're proud of you, my True. guy. True. That was a big step for you, and you did a good job. To be um, fair, The Shining's in also Maine. in Colorado. I think this is in Maine. I think I'm thinking of The Shining. Yeah, The Shining's in Colorado. No, this is in Colorado, too. Oh, it is? Okay, cool. Yeah. Oh, Nevada. Nevada. It's in oh, it's, it's set in Colorado, but they recorded in Nevada. Okay. Oh, okay. Regardless, we see like these gorgeous shots of like the mountains, the snow, the trees. I don't know. I love a cinematography. Mm-hmm. And then we see Annie and Paul talking about Paul's injuries. And Annie tells Paul that he'll make a full recovery and then shows us his horribly fucked up legs, which are all purple and bruised. Uh But Annie is proud of the work she did on them. Foreshadowing! (laughs) Foreshadowing! (laughs) Spelling doom! Annie assures Paul as soon as the roads are open, she'll take him to the hospital. And everything's great, guys. Everything is fantastic. Annie Wokes is a saint. Paul's legs are going to make a full recovery. He's going to walk again. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We get a scene where Paul Sheldon's publicist reaches out to the best character in the entire film besides Kathy Bates, Sheriff Buster. Mm, My man. See, if I had just waited for two more show notes down, I would have seen where I wrote Silver Creek, Silver Creek, Colorado. 
But uh, it's oh, well, what can you do? <laughs> so we find out that the sheriff is hokey. 1970s hokey pokey hysterical. I absolutely love the way this guy is played. I, listen, I just want to say when I say a cab, I don't mean this man. Agreed. He's the only one. <laughs> the publicist tells the sheriff that she's concerned Sheldon's missing. And they have some around the bush conversation before the sheriff tries to reassure the publicist that everything will be okay. And I love this part. He tells her, all right, he'll add Paul to his system. And then we just see him or like write a, something on a sticky note and just put it on a cork board. And like, you know, that probably was a system back there, but I back then, but I just think it's hilarious. Like it's just a cork board with a bunch of sticky notes. And I don't know. I love, and I love honestly, that. It kind of worked to be fair. His system kind of flawless. <laughs> yeah. So then after the sheriff and his wife have a little back and forth, I think that the quote that I love the most is maybe from further in the movie, mm-hmm. but they're little like the way that they work. And when he says like, it's just that sarcasm that's given our marriage a real spice <laughs> was so me and my spouse. It was ridiculous. I love when they're in the car and she puts her hand on his leg and he's like, when you're in this car, you're my deputy, not my wife. <laughs> like, oh, the deputy's just trying to have some fun with the sheriff. <laughs> I love that. Um, So yeah, we see Paul and Annie talking and uh, Paul tells Annie that it's a miracle how she finds him. And Annie's like, oh, no, no, my sweet summer child. I was stalking your ass. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, she basically spends a lot of time telling Paul how much she loves him and his writing. And she basically tells him that she knew he was at the Silver Creek Lodge where he was writing um, his book and she knows he goes there. And so she was parking outside of it for like days trying to see if she could catch a glimpse of him. And that's when she noticed him take off and she's like, I don't know how a, how a big smart uh, author like yourself or whatever she says could get into a car and drive off. And he's like, well, I didn't know there was going to be a snowstorm. And it's just like, that's creepy. Yeah. She really, uh, she kind of was like, oh, you know, I knew you were in the area. And then I was like, I watched you through your window every night. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> that's different. Those are different things. Yeah. Um, and Paul remarks to Andy that he wants to call his daughter. And she kind of brushes that off, kind of says, well, the phone lines are still down. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but I feel like, and, and maybe it's just James Conn's acting. Um, but like, he just seems so damn oblivious to this crazy woman still in my opinion like he doesn't seem nervous he doesn't seem skeptical he's just like oh yeah the phone lines oh okay like i I don't know i just i was like dude are you not like even a little bit suspicious here to be fair until she goes like bad shit the first time it's kind of like well maybe you know she's a little weird but she's like you know he's like a new a new york elite and she's just like a simple country folk you know like i don't i was just trying to put myself in his mind or something you know yeah also, you can't see the road directly, like from where he yeah. is in bed. You you just see like the snow. grass covered in snow. So yeah. it's like that's pretty believable if you can't mm-hmm. see it like actively melting. And you never yeah. hear her phone ring. You never hear you know nothing. True, true, true. Show yeah. anything. So then Annie asked Paul if she can read the new manuscript she's found in his case, uh, and then you know he tells her yeah she can whatever she gets all excited. Um, and then we see the sheriff talking to the head of a Silver Creek Lodge, investigating where Sheldon could have gone missing. But after a brief conversation, they kind of switch back to Annie and Paul. Basically, the sheriff or the guy at the lodge tells him, oh, no, he he left 
how he always leaves and then the sheriff's like well when did he leave and he tells him and, and then the sheriff's like mm, right before the big storm don't like that and then they switch back to annie and paul annie tells paul how she's not happy with paul's new word because he swears too much and uh yeah here we go so uh Paul kind of tries to justify the language to Annie. Oh, well, they're slum kids. I was a slum kid. Annie, and he's like, everybody talks like that. Uh, and so Annie loses it. And this is when we get the first major impression that, like, something's not right. Like, she just starts uh, going off. And my favorite quote from this, she goes, Oh, now, Wally, give me a bag of that effing pig feed and 10 pounds of this bitchly cow corn. I'm like, <laughs> bitchly cow corn? What? <laughs> yeah, she starts going off. She's angry. She's ranty. So notable in this scene for me is when Annie starts to go off, her eyes get like huge. Literally when she goes off this first time was when I was like, oh, I'm in for a moment here. <laughs> and she, every time she goes off, notice that she just kind of stares into space. She's mm -hmm. almost never looking at Paul directly. She's staring somewhere else into the universe, just losing her ever like disassociating almost and like losing yeah. her ever loving mind and then in a split second she just palms right down again and she gets her nice sweet nurse voice she tells paul that she loves him and then quickly changes it to she loves his mind and his work when she sees so she's like you know i love you and paul's just like oh <laughs> and then she's <laughs> like you know like i meant your mind and your work and everything you know once she kind of sees how noticeably yeah he did mm -hmm. not like that so next we see the sheriff and his wife start to investigate the roadside where they see a broken in half tree. And that's where the banter about her putting his, uh, her hand on his knee and all that happens. So after a little bit of investigating, the sheriff kind of like takes off. They see like there's like this broken tree where the car would have hit it. And he starts to look around, but the snow is so thick at that time, he doesn't actually notice the car. And as he starts to take off, you see Annie Wilkes pass by kind of going the opposite way, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. They kind of pass each other um yeah this is a real stereotypical trope of like thriller and horror movies from like back in the day you know serial killers going back to the scene of the crime and you just yeah. the killer type thing mm -hmm. so annie comes back with paul's most recent misery book uh which she just picked up from town so it's like the final book in the series of course she doesn't know that um and she's bursting with excitement and she tells him how excited she is she tells him that she talked to a doctor never happened of course and that she's uh she's just giving him false hope but she tells him that she talked to a doctor and as soon as the snow's up she's gonna take him to the hospital she brings him breakfast when she goes in to talk to him and i'm just saying that breakfast looked fire okay it did. that breakfast looked like it, it, it looked fire a nice farm to table breakfast always hits the spot you know yeah especially cooked by such a sweet and gracious host <laughs> <laughs> So we get another nice shot of Nevada, Colorado, whatever the hell you want to call it, as we see Sheldon lying in bed. And then here comes Erie's favorite part. All of a sudden, like his door just starts to creak open ever so slowly. And then this big, adorable pig just comes rumbling through the door, snorting and looking all adorable. And Annie tells Paul that her pig is named Misery. And Paul's just like, bro, what? <laughs> like okay yeah i think he started at that point he's like oh, guys, uh... i don't know if we've explained this yet but misery is the name of the character in the misery series of books he's writing yes so she's like deep into this 
Yeah, my bad. Um, if this isn't like as professionally sounding as when Erie and Serafina do it, it's a much different <laughs> style of podcasting than I'm used to, and I'm doing no my worries. Oh, so you're doing you great. Catching. I think that's the only fact that you haven't perfectly covered yet. That's why I was like, wait a second, it's not you know, misery is like a female that's sh- you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all about. Interesting other factoid. Apparently, the name Misery for women like spiked for a little bit after this book was released. No fucking way. Which I've never met a girl named Misery before. I haven't um, either. But Me like, either. I read, I read on some kind of, uh, or maybe it was a YouTube video I watched where they said like, obviously it's not like there's tons of girls named Misery, but the name itself like kind of spiked. I don't know. That was interesting. No, that's super interesting because it's a weird name. It is a very weird name. Um, like. I guess it's me in its own way if misery didn't mean misery. Yeah. <laughs> it just sounds like Missouri, you know? Missouri. Missouri. Uh, I would personally name my daughter Annie Wilkes, you know, because that's just a great person. She's beautiful, yeah. you know? Yeah, exactly. But, uh, so Annie tells Paul that she's almost done with the book. And it was, what I think is great, and, and I think that James Caan is an exceptionally good... I know there's a professional term for it, but he's an especially good actor when it comes to facial expressions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can see a look of foreboding crumb across his face because like, he knows Annie is not going to like that, right? He's not, he's, he's not going to like that the series in theory is ending and right. it's just like the subtle kind of facial expressions con makes i just i think they're exceptionally i think they're exceptionally awesome yeah he he definitely tells the subtext very well yeah so then we get like a random transition uh where annie is staring out of a window telling paul about like how her husband left her and like it, it's just super random um in the books it kind of makes a little more sense because intermittent between all these scenes of like important stuff is just his day-to-day life with Annie. And, and but in the movie, because we've only really seen like significant, like, Oh, Hey, the doctor. Oh, Hey, she's reading the book. Oh, she found his new book. This is just her randomly being like, my husband left me. And you're like, okay, like, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but it does come out of nowhere, and I think it points to kind of like the whole bipolar disorder thing. That was really their biggest thing with this movie. They didn't want her to seem like some horrible villainous bitch. They wanted her to seem like an unfortunately mentally sick person, and this guy happened to get in the way of that like untreated mental illness. Yeah. But really, I think this scene just serves to further explain like Annie's unhealthy obsession to misery. Um, she was going through a traumatic time in her life, and kind of misery was a coping mechanism. She tells Paul how when she was going through a divorce uh, and she like loses her job at the hospital and all this other stuff, she turned to misery. She was reading misery all the time. Um, she just fell into the world and the characters fell in love with the woman. And so it's it's something you see in people that do have like traumatic past lives or even traumatic mental illnesses where they turn to things and like obsessively kind of cope, use those things to cope. Yeah. And so I thought that was portrayed really well. And then this deep scene is just broken up by Paul Selden's or by Paul saying he's done. And he's like pissing into this jug and Annie just like takes the jug from him. And then she just starts casually talking about the institution of marriage while like taking this jug around at Paul and <laughs> Paul's face. Again, James Conn is so good. He's just looking so concerned. He's like, dude, please. Like, I don't I don't want that on me. Like, can you please stop? And she's like, it will take a special man for me to want to walk down that aisle again. And Paul's just like, uh-huh. <laughs> like, uh, yes, go off. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here we go. 
it's time for my favorite scene in the entire film. So, we come back to a dark night lit only by the lights in Annie's cabin and the full moon, when all of a sudden Paul wakes to his door being, like, slammed open. Annie stands in front of him and calls him a dirty birdie, which, again, hysterical. <laughs> Just love it. And then she loses her mind after finding out that Paul killed off Misery, ultimately, like, ending the Misery series, right? She's losing it. She's screaming, and she just goes, I, she's like, I don't want her dead. I want her, and you murdered her. And then she's, like, picking up and down Paul's bed, and then she, like, slams, she, like, picks up, um, she picks up something, she, like, slams it. I think it's, like, a, a plant, a potted plant. And then Paul kind of tries to justify, like, what he did, why he killed her off, whatever. And then she, like, picks up this chair, and she acts like she's gonna, like, hit him with it, and then she, like, throws it onto the ground, breaks it on the ground. And this is when we see the relationship between Paul and Annie shift entirely, and, and this shift is noticeable, and it kind of stays for the rest of the film. Annie's basically deciding, like, all gloves are off. She starts swearing by her love for Paul, and then she tells him not to expect any help, because she never reached out to anyone, and she doesn't plan on doing it either. Super pivotal scene. I think... The part that really got me is because she starts screaming like, like, bring back my misery, like bring, bring back my misery. Yeah. And uh, that was definitely interesting where it's like she's really lost in reality. Yeah, I think that's when he started to realize that she's actually dangerous, too, yeah. where it's like before it's like, oh, okay, maybe she's just, you know, obsessed, like really big fan like it's kind of weird but some of it's explainable i think that was the scene where it was like oh shit she's like gonna fucking kill me if i don't do something about it and so kind of as she leaves we see paul attempts to leave his bed before realizing that his legs are still useless um but he crawls to his door only to find out that it's locked from the outside and then he kind of just like lays there and like pain and hopeless frustration so then we see the sheriff and his wife investigating again and do you guys remember exactly what they're doing in this scene? Because I'm trying to recall. I think they're just kind of discussing um, Paul Sheldon's writing process. Are they not? Do you guys remember? Yeah, he picks up all the books. Yeah. To yeah. start reading them to see if he can find any clues to lead him anywhere. Like get in his mind. Yeah. Right. And so that happens. And then uh, we cut back to a scene of Annie looking at Paul lying on the floor. And she's back into sweet nurse mode. And Annie tells Paul she has a big surprise for him. And she starts a monologue about having a bad memory. And it seems like it's nonsense at first. But then she says, and that's why I couldn't remember all the things they said to me on the witness stand in Denver. Mm -hmm. That is important. And it comes up later. Then Annie speaks with Jesus. She speaks (laughs) with the Lord. The Lord. She's bathed in his blood, you know. (laughs) And the Lord tells her. (laughs) <laughs> that uh, she, uh, Paul was put into her care on purpose, right? And she makes Paul burn his new manuscript. Or she basically tells him, like, you know, hey, you're you're going to burn your manus- manuscript. And there's this psychological game played between Paul and Annie where he tells her, like, hey, it doesn't matter if you burn the book because I have other copies. And she's like, no, you don't. And she goes into this long spiel. Well, basically, Annie knows Paul better than Paul knows Paul in a weird way. Is that like a stupid thing for me to say? No, I no, would agree with I think that. That's true. Yep. Um, she's just like, uh, no, you don't, because blah 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 blah. And Paul's like, right, because she, well, she knows all of his superstitions. 
Exactly. She uh, says to him, like, 11 years ago, you said in an interview that you wouldn't copy because exactly. you're afraid of facts and all this stuff. Like, she quotes him back to him, which is wild. Yeah, I mean, his face is just like, oh, eh, well, shit. <laughs> and so, you know, Annie calls his bluff. And uh, ultimately, the book gets burned. And uh, mind you, Annie, in an act of psychological domination, makes Paul burn the book, like, forces him to do it. And then, did I also mention that in order to force Paul to burn his book, Annie starts pouring lighter fluid all over the blankets covering Paul's body as if to say, it's you or the book, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. What's also weird, and maybe I'm wrong on this, and you guys can correct me, but I know he's a superstitious guy and he's always done this, but well, one, this is a different book series. I don't have to have this but also as a writer couldn't you just rewrite it like just burn that book and be like all right tight like it's all up here you know uh, yeah wrong about no i don't think so but i do think that it's a little bit different when you can't like save your drafts you know it's like he's gonna write it but yeah. it's not gonna be the same way he wrote it the first time all right that's fair and i also i also feel like it's just a uh pride type thing like he wants to win the battle over any he doesn't want to submit to her he doesn't want to burn his book just to please her right and so dog have you looked at your legs like come on have you looked at your legs <laughs> so i really love the way like he sets the and i don't know why this is so like funny and entertaining to me but i quote it with my best friends all the time um, and they probably seen the movie once, but I just quote the movie so much. But she's like, oh, my goodness. Heavens to Betsy. Oh, my goodness. Because, like, pieces of the book are just flying up everywhere, smoking. And I don't know. I just love the dialogue. I think it's hysterical. And so I'll be chilling with my friends and something random will happen. I'll just go, heavens to Betsy. Her dialogue is so funny. I'll just, go, I'll just yeah. go, heavens to Betsy. My two big-ass redneck best friends will start going, Oh my goodness! And I don't—it's fantastic. It's weird, and it's such a good dichotomy because she is clearly so mentally ill and has a lot of anger inside of her. But she like is she talks like your Christian grandmother. <laughs> yeah, and it I know is. that like. Oh, go ahead, finish your thought. Oh, it's just funny to me. Like the whole time, like she's like ready. She's pouring lighter fluid. You know, it's just hilarious to me. Yeah, and I know, like, Stephen King is, like, a really big, like, he's not a fan of, like, Christianity and, like, organized religion and stuff. And I wonder if part of it was, like, him trying to point out, like, he'll do all this psychotic shit and threaten to burn the man alive and, and keep him captive and other crazy things that happen later. But he won't curse because the good book tells her not to. Yeah, and I wonder right about if that. I wonder if that's, like, something he's trying to, like, point out to you, you know? Mm-hmm. For yeah. sure. Because if Stephen King could take a dig at Christianity, you know that man's going to. He's going to get his digs in. <laughs> yeah. Me too, Mr. King. Me uh, say, too. Honestly, bless him for it. Yeah. <laughs> so, a couple scenes go by. Uh, it's not really anything too significant, but we do start seeing Paul starts to hide the pills that Annie's giving him. That is significant. It will come up later. But yeah, he, he cuts this like... Uh, I want to say he, in the beginning, he just kind of hides them like under his pillow or something like that. And later on in the book, he's going to find a new hiding spot. His but, pills, uh, you mean? Yeah, his pills. Yeah. What'd I say? I didn't hear the pills part. Oh, okay. Got you, got you. My bad. So I absolutely love the scene co that comes up shortly after we see Paul hiding his medication where Annie is laying in bed, just like eating old 80s like cheese puffs, drinking straight out of a two liter of Coke. 
and watching this like '80s dating game show. Like, I don't know. I just, I just love that scene. It's just funny to me. She's just like um, me for real. <laughs> Not me eating like popcorn and watching Worst Cooks in America all night last night. Hell but yeah. uh, uh, so then we see that Annie has gotten Paul a wheelchair, and we find out that Annie has bought Paul a new typewriter. And demands that he revive the misery or revives misery and continues the misery series. And so Annie gets all dreamy eyed and she says that it will be a book written in her honor. And she's really just playing on this whole like, bro, I, I kind of own you at this point. Like, what are you going to do about it? And so Paul sees a hairpin on the floor and uh, he realizes he can use that pin to lock his door and leave his room. And we're going to get to that uh, but Paul shows Annie. So basically Annie comes in with this uh, typewriter paper. And um, luckily for Paul, because it's not like he was bullshitting her, but luckily for Paul, this paper smudges. Um, and she doesn't believe him. And so he basically shows her. He like writes out the word smudge and then, like runs his thumb across it. And it's like ink like smears. And Annie gets like pissed off again and just goes on this rant about how she does everything for him. And he's so unappreciative again. So we kind of switch that severe bipolar personality thing she's got going on mm -hmm. but yeah once again uh she leaves paul and so paul uses it as an opportunity to escape his room and view the house so basically annie leaves to go get him new typewriter paper and once she leaves paul's able to snatch up that hairpan and use it to like unlock his door freedom freedom if that's what you want to call it yeah <laughs> So Paul's kind of wheeling around the house, uh, kind of looking around things, and he knocks down like a penguin ornament of Annie's. She had like, so, like village set up. Uh, There's this penguin, and she knocks it down. And then he puts it the opposite way of the way it was facing. He like puts it back up, but he turns it opposite of the way it was originally facing. As soon as that happens, I'm like, oh, he's about to get fucked. Like, that's going to be a problem <laughs> later. Like, oh, you yeah, can sure. tell they're specifically fucking placed. And this motherfucker just fucked it all up. For sure. And then Paul discovers like a room full of medicine and he steals a package of the pain medication. And then we kind of see that Annie's on her way back to the house. And then I love the like suspenseful music here. It's that like real 80s, 90s style of like suspenseful horror mm -hmm. movie music. I'm a big fan of it. Um, Paul hears Annie coming up the drive and, it's, and he's still out of his room. And so, of course, it's like that stereotypical scene where the guy barely gets away from the villain of a nick of time, which in this case is Paul making it back to his bedroom before Annie gets inside. I just want to say the ambiance at this time, I was nervous. I was. Oh, yeah. Well, you, were, you were sitting there like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, same. oh, shit. Heavens to Betsy, brother. Get in there. Like, oh, my. His movement is so impaired that you're like, man's got run. Like, man's has to, like, he is Call making himself. his way downtown not fast. <laughs> Walking slow. <laughs> so then she does another line that I quote. 24 7 but she goes i've done a lot of thinking on the drive and i'm absolutely certain the main reason i've never been more popular is because of my temper and it's just like <laughs> annie you literally have threatened to kill this man you have covered him in gasoline you've like almost smashed his face in with the chair you're holding him hostage you just lost your shit because you brought the wrong printer paper and you're just like i you know i think my temper might be a problem and it's like you don't fucking think we love a self-aware queen. Right. Yeah, the accountability, for real. <laughs> Seriously. Um, so we cut to a scene of the sheriff in a helicopter 
with like a helicopter pilot, whatever, and they discover Paul Sheldon's Mustang. So then we cut to a state ranger announcing that authorities believe Sheldon escaped the car and died in the snow. He says, unless the animals got to him first. I'm like, oh, grim, but I guess that's... Yeah, okay. Life. Um, yeah, but Sheriff Buster, you know, our, our, our friendly neighborhood detective who's a little more invested in things, seems to notice crowbar marks on the car. And so he's talking to uh, his wife. Um, she's like, you don't, you don't believe... She says, you don't believe, you know, something or you don't believe he's dead. That's what she says. And he's like, well, I don't believe he got out of that car on his own. And he kind of points out the crowbar marks. And it's like, hmm, you know, mysterious. Uh, and then we cut to a hilarious scene of Paul writing, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> on a typewriter while making all these like sassy faces. And again, I love James Kahn's facial expressions. That's literally me. Every single time I have to start writing a podcast and I have all of my research in front of me, I'm just like, fuck, 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 fuck. Same. <laughs> so Paul starts to develop this new misery book when Annie comes in with a portion of the manuscript. She declares that it's like all wrong. This is another incredibly famous scene from this movie. It's one of my favorites. But um, she says, because it's not believable or because it's not believable, this leads to probably the most famous Annie Wilkes blow-up scene where she gets cross-eyed. So she starts screaming about these old theater shorts, um, cliffhangers, whatever you want to call them. She talks about this character that, like, is about to go into a car, or he's, his car is about to crash into a cliff, and at the very end of it, the first time around, you see the car crash into a cliff, but then when they come back, like, the next week to, like, the little movie theater short, all of a sudden he jumped out of the car and he lived. And she's like, everybody was cheering. Everybody was happy. She goes, but I didn't cheer. I stood up right in the middle of the theater and I screamed. That's not true. Something, something, something. He didn't get out of the cock a duty car. It's the <laughs> way she screams and she goes cross-eyed. And her eyes get massive, and she's staring into space. And he didn't get out of the cock duty car is, like, iconic to this movie. Yeah, she says that a lot, and it's she eats every time she says it, honestly. <laughs> yeah, she's worried it's not fair. It's not fair. That's not fair. Yeah. Which I always thought was kind of, I thought when watching it, I was like, fair is a weird word for that. Like, that's not fair. It's, like, kind of odd, but she's, like, obsessed with how unfair it is, which I think points back to, like, the mental illness of it all. Right, and she's kind of, like, strangely childlike in a way. Yeah, I also really like that our generation, when we see stuff like that happen in children around us, we get them mental health care, which is really nice. <laughs> if we can, I mean, if you can afford to or find a therapist near you, but I do appreciate it's something that we pay attention to because someone probably should have had her checked out a while ago. Yeah, and S Stephen King never goes into like exactly what was wrong with Annie, but Rob Reiner and Annie, for the purpose of like her acting better, kind of came up with like a backstory, which Stephen King also kind of signed off on, where basically she kind of had like an abusive, mentally, sexually, emotionally a relationship with her father, oh, um, which kind of leads her, yeah, which kind of leads her to kind of be, sense. yeah, which kind of leads her to be some of the way she is. So like. Does it say it in the book or the movie? No, but did Stephen King kind of sign off on it and say, like, yeah, I like that. That's that's a good take on it. Yeah, he did. So we'll consider it canon. All right. Yeah. So James Cannon. Aha. <laughs> <laughs> so then time kind of passes and we see Annie reading another manuscript with Paul waiting for her opinion. And she absolutely loves it. And then Paul kind of realizes like how to please Annie. What's really funny is she says like she loves the part uh where 
he had named a grave digger after her, Grave Digger Wilkes. Mm-hmm. Um, big fan of that. And then Paul asked Annie to have a dinner with him to celebrate Misery's return. So, um, good little bit there. Uh, so then, a few scenes ago, we kind of pointed out that Paul Sheldon um, has been hiding these pills that Annie's been giving him. Uh, and then a couple scenes before that, or I mean a couple scenes after that, excuse me, we had seen Paul kind of taking apart these pills and kind of like playing with the powder in it, just kind of like inspecting it. Um, so later during that dinner, Paul and Annie are eating, and Paul suggests a toast, and then Annie pours two glasses of wine. And before drinking, Paul asks Annie to find a candle. Um, so she's up, she's looking for a candle, and then he spikes her drink with the powder while she search while she's searching for the candle. But here's the thing. Right before drinking, Annie knocks into the candle and spills out some of the wine before dropping the cup on the table. And it seems accidental and, and like bad luck, but I really don't think it was, and here's why. When the cup's laying on its side, it's still about a quarter full. Annie purposefully picks up the cup, tips it upside down, pours the rest of it out of the drink. Where she mm-hmm. says, oh, I'm such a clutch. Like, there's still, like, a good bit of wine in that cup. And she picks it from its side, flips it upside down, completely empties a glass. And she's like, oh, I'm such a klutz. Um, I think she genuinely suspected foul play and outsmarted Paul here. Um, can I tell you that I funny. agree with you? And can I tell you why? Yeah, for sure. The only thing I can think of is because when we see him taking these pills apart, he swallows all of the pill capsules. And I don't know if you've ever taken medication quite regularly, and I'm sorry for the TMI in the scenario here, but those pill capsules don't necessarily dissolve very well. And she's the one dealing with all of his bathroom needs. Oh, that's a good point. At some point, I don't know if she observed that those capsules weren't around anymore, and then there was a huge influx of them at one point. Right. Right, right. So that was my thought. Because I was like, how was he going to get rid of those? Because they don't really dissolve all that. If you take those capsules ever and like look at your own uh, yeah. excrement, like you see them. So that was my thought. So when you said that, I was like, yeah, I thought that too in the movie. Because I was like, she would know. She knows everything about that man right now. I, the first time I watched it, kind of thought it was an accident because it just seemed like her being a klutz. But I think you guys talking about it is like, makes me think. Can I tell you that this scene pissed me off so much? (laughs) Oh, no, why? Well, just, we were already so far into the movie that I was like, oh, maybe like finally, because then I was like, when I was going to be stuck in this house, you know, he finds out that the phone cords have all been cut. She has no phone in or out. Like, I don't know how the hell he was going to get out of there, but I was like, okay, maybe the last of this movie is like him getting out or whatever. I was like, maybe finally he actually does get some revenge. Like she at least falls asleep for a couple of hours and he can do whatever. But like she just spilled it. And I was like, motherfucker. <laughs> like, I'm yeah, so like, we Not were so close. wine. <laughs> the cockadoody wine. <laughs> so then we get like a really wonderful montage of like paul writing the new misery book and then annie's reading it and loving it and then sheriff buster's also reading the misery series um because he's still investigating paul and his disappearance um we see paul lifting the typewriter like it's a weight 
Um, so he's kind of like like a dumbbell almost, just like lifting it up, down, whatever. Um, so right as the montage, so the montage kind of ends on like a stormy, thundery night, and a very depressed and like very down looking Annie comes in, and she gives Paulus pills, and the ball kind of inquires as to what's wrong with Annie. Um, she tells him that she hates the rain. And she also expresses how she knows Paul doesn't like her and wouldn't be there. She didn't force him to be. And Annie says, quote, you'll never know the fear of losing someone like you if you're someone like me. I think that line's like extremely deep. Um, like, don't have me feeling bad for Annie Wilkes here, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, like, then she pulls out an old revolver and, and Paul's like, oh, Lord. And she's like... She tells Paul that she's contemplated suicide at times before saying, like, very darkly, she says, I better go now. I might put bullets in it. And, like, her face is expressionless. Her eyes still have that big, distant kind of look to them. There's no emotion in her voice. And she's just like, I better go now. I might put bullets in it. She's um, full zombie. Yeah. yeah. I kind of think... um I mean, the bipolar disorder, we now know more about mental health. I kind of almost think that they portrayed her more in like a BPD kind of way. Mm -hmm. Which is really interesting. But this scene really sells it where you're like, well, damn. Damn. Yeah, she seems to go into these like disassociative states where mm -hmm. she's just like very innerly like depressed and like a different person. And she just kind of seems there but detached. I don't know. It's very interesting. Um, but she leaves the property. And Paul's like, I'm going to go for another stroll. And so he like, he, he immediately goes to the kitchen and he grabs a knife. And, and all I can think of is like, Paul, how, how the fuck do you think Andy's not going to notice a big ass steak knife? Hello? Missing from like, the for kitchen. real. <laughs> like every time I see this movie, even though I know this movie goes, I'm just like, why would you grab the big knife? Um, and when he finds like a memory book of Andy's, which is full of a bunch of press clippings of like strange deaths that seem to be happening in these hospitals that Annie's worked in, culminating in Annie being named head maternity nurse of a pediatric hospital, which leads to the death of three children. And then this leads to Annie being fired and investigated. And again, that was referenced when she said she couldn't remember the questions they asked her on the witness stand in Denver. Which, pretty sus, you're keeping fucking clippings like that, homie. No, I, I mean... agree with you entirely. It was full, like, whiteboard with yarn just connecting her dots for her being a mass murderer. <laughs> Literally. Yeah, and then, like, I don't, I don't know if you guys are weird, but, like, I, I paused the movie so I could, like, read what yeah, was on the press. I did a couple times, yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know, it was interesting. It was just, like, because I was, like, did they just put a bunch of bullshit, or was it, like, actually? <laughs> no, it's well, Stephen King. It's Stephen King, yeah. Also, it's crazy because, like, it these, like, murders, like, kind of start in high school so like mm -hmm. her like body count is like insane yeah it's impressive and uh i also was pausing it whenever it was like the misery book and i was reading about misery my god this sounds awful <laughs> right <laughs> it sounds terrible um but paul returns to his room with the knife and we see the suspense of the movie like really starts to build here annie arrives home and paul starts to nod off asleep everything's like his door is closed all the lights are off. Um, you hear Annie walking. She kind of steps up to the door. It's very quiet. And then she kind of walks off. The camera pans off of a sleeping Paul's face before he wakes with a start as we see Annie glowering over him. Once again, blank expression on her face 
as she like quickly grabs his arm and like injects him with something that like knocks him out right mm-hmm. this is all i can think about during the scene did you guys ever watch spongebob yes yeah. of course so all i can think of is when they were looking for um i can't remember who they were looking for but patrick goes he's just standing there menacingly (laughs) (laughs) i love that shit every time i see that i just i crack up but uh so paul wakes up to annie revealing that she's discovered he's been out of his room how did she figure it out guys i have one guess what's your guess maybe a arctic flightless bird that this motherfucker knocked over what do you what do you think erie what do you what how do you think she found out could it possibly Mayor Penguin of Penguin Town is not in his rightful mayor place? Yes, Mayor Penguin Ten is always facing due south. And he was not turned due south. And that's that's basically how she feels it. And then she says she also discovered the knife and his stock of pills. Alright, you guys ready to talk about the next scene? Yeah, but can I confess something first? Go ahead. I don't know where anything is in my house. I have HD. So the idea <laughs> that she's like, yeah, it's always facing south. I'm like, I, the only thing I know is south is because of the windows for my house plants. Other than that, baby, I'm clueless. <laughs> Can I be real with y'all and say that um, anytime I need to know directions, I go never eat sour watermelon. Okay, cool. Oh, never eat soggy waffles. I've oh, also man. never eat squishy worms or something That's like that. That's the one Woo! I know. Yeah, yeah. That's yep. what I know. Okay. So now we get one of the most disturbing scenes in any movie ever, ever. I believe this. You cannot convince me otherwise. Annie, in an effort to prevent Paul from ever escaping again, hobbles him. Ooh. So she gives him this speech about how, like, uh, American was, like, which, like, pioneers, whatever you want to call them, when they used to have, like, Native Americans, like, working in mines doing like slave work basically when the native americans would try to escape they would capture them but they could still do mine work because their arms and like chest and everything still worked but they needed to prevent them from escaping again so what did they do they chopped off their feet mm-hmm. um so that was a thing called hobbling so she takes a sledgehammer and she smashes and destroys his ankles, his feet. And yes, we see this on screen. James Conn's scream of pain here is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, It's tough to watch, dude. It is. I don't do this often, but in the book, she uses a hatchet and she chops uh. his foot off. <gasps> what? But they felt that, even though the sledgehammer is horrific, they felt that the hatchet was too much. I kind of agree. It, I the, agreed. The so hobbling she, sells it enough. Yeah. Um. So she breaks his foot, but in the book, she actually chops him clean off. Yeah. Wow. Traumatizing. Yeah. So this scene is absolutely brutal. Um. I mean, give the man some credit for his acting here. Give the man some yeah. credit. Um, yeah. There were a couple directors. I can't remember them off the top of my head, but there were some directors who turned down the entirety of directing this movie because of this one scene. Um, I believe that a couple of the like executive producers of this movie wanted to change the scene or imply that it happened. And Rob Reiner was like, no, 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 no. We're doing this fucking scene. I mean, it is what makes the movie. It's the scariest scene. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, I would agree. It's horrific. And then at the very end of it, 
and I hope you guys appreciate this as much as I do. She just looks at him and with this like tone of like and I don't know another word to like use, but like sexual exhilaration, she just goes, God, I love you. I'm just like, yeah. oh like he is screaming and writhing in pain and she's just like, God, I love you. I like, think it's because that she's like, Oh, you're like really fucking trapped. Yeah. You're mine. Yep. Yeah. And so the next day, <laughs> the sheriff sees Annie kind of like raging in town. Like she like almost like gets hit by this one guy or whatever. Um, she like hogs at him. It's funny. You cock a duty. And uh, somehow this like sparks an idea for him to like investigate Wilkes, the Wilkes farm after connecting a misery quote from the books with a quote Annie had gave during a court trial about the mysterious deaths of a children in her care. Only God can judge me. Yeah. It's it's a very Annie quote, isn't it? Which, <laughs> my personal favorite part is he wrote it down on a sticky note part of his elaborate sticky note system. You know? Yeah. You're a right big fan of the sticky note system, aren't you? Yeah. You're like a real believer. It's the Capricorn in her. Office supplies really do a lot. That's fucking true. I love a good planner, man. Um, he then asks the local general store owner questions about Annie, and this kind of seems to start like piecing everything together for him. And so... He makes his way to the Wilkes farm. And so Annie and Paul are kind of in the same room and uh, they see the sheriff kind of start to come up the drive at the same time. And so Paul like, which like Paul, what are you doing? Like, so Annie kind of rushes and like, kind of like rushes at Paul um, and she starts like dragging him against his will. And it's like, Paul's kind of fighting her, but like Paul, what bro, your feet just got broke. What, like, what are you doing? My guy. Well, wait, hold on. This scene's a little different because he's set up right next to the front window and he sees the sheriff comes in and he hears Annie start running at him like her big ass footsteps. And she runs in there with a needle, like ready to inject him again. Right, right, right. I think I'm getting book mixed with movie here. Oh, yeah, that's probably that's probably also, different. let's not dismiss the upper body strength he's been trying to work on this entire time. Typewriters are fucking heavy. They right. are. He's trying. He's fucking trying. He might not have working legs right now, but he is. He's giving it his damnedest. <laughs> I want you guys to know that while you guys were seeing that, I got a notification on my phone, and it says the disappearance of white collar jobs and why many good Americans might find themselves back in factories. Holy like so. God. Wall Street Journal article. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh man. Anyways, um, so Annie basically like hides him away in the in like the basement. It is a basement, right, of the house? Yeah. Okay. Yep. No sanguine. Uh, Annie puts on the hokey like fan routine. Basically, like right at the circus store, she like opens the door and she's just like, "Oh!" And he's like, "Oh!" Like you open that pretty quick. And she's like, "Well, I don't ever get visitors." And then. She puts on like the hokey fan routine before creating this masterful lie to the sheriff about how the good Lord told her to continue Paul Sheldon's work uh, because she knew he would see the typewriter and the paper and probably the manuscript. So she's telling him about how she like gets this manuscript and she's going to be like, she's going to write the next misery novel and, and blah, 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 and take after Paul Sheldon's footsteps and take up his work. And Buster isn't quite convinced. He starts kind of searching around the rest of Annie's house before deciding there's no, like, definitive evidence and leaving. And, and obviously he's suspicious, but he doesn't really have, like, much of anything to kind of go off of, right? As he's on his way out of the door, Paul comes to, she injected him, and 
screams like this kind of alert. Now he screams like, hey, doesn't he? Or he bangs on I'm something. I'm down here. I'm down yeah. here, right. Um, so he screams this alert, and Buster rushes back into the house. Um, busts open the door, finds Paul, and before he can act, Annie blows his fucking, is it his head? It's his heart. Blows his, his fucking, chest. yeah, like blows his heart, blows his chest out with a shotgun. It's um, so sad. Literally the worst scene for me. The hobbling I, I can so take. Sad. Same, yeah. I would rather watch the hobbling like multiple can times I, than this scene. Can I make it worse for you guys? Mm-hmm. I guess. In the book, she chops him up with that's. No! Aww. A little more Stephen aggressive. King. <laughs> Stephen King likes like his axe murderers, you know? He, he does really love does. <laughs> So she decides that she and Paul have to die. And so Paul, in one last attempt to stay alive, convinces Annie that they should die together. But after he's finished the Misery novel, that he'll finish it and then they'll die before Annie can read the end of the Misery book. So he kind of like he finishes the book and like right before he and like Annie can read the end of the book, he like sets it on fire. He's like, hey, bitch, just like sets that shit on fire. And then Annie's like freaking out. She's like trying to get the book. She's like, ah, oh, your book. He picks up the typewriter and just like bashes it over her head. And the, what's scary about Annie is that she like barely phases her. Like he just like wonked this woman in the head with the freaking typewriter. And it was just like, thunk. this is <laughs> fine. Exactly. Um, so he and Annie get into a fight. And this time Paul gets the upper hand, which includes him bashing her face on the ground. Puffing her mouth full of like the burning ashy book and then like tripping her, causing her to hit her head on a typewriter. And you're like, she's finally dead, right? No, <laughs> wrong. She's <laughs> a psychotic bitch, and psychotic bitches have to be killed three times before they actually die. That's right. All my enemies take notice. <laughs> <laughs> so, as Paul starts to escape, Annie jumps on him, starts trying to kill him. This struggle ensues. And then Paul bashes her head in with a pig statue. Bust of Annie's pig named Misery. Misery, the thing she loves the most, kills Annie. Irony, bitches. Is that irony? Yeah. Yeah. Yay, I got things right. <laughs> Good job. Thank you. Um, so then we kind of skip to the future, uh, where Paul is having a dinner with his publicist, and uh, he's written a new book that isn't Misery, which seems to be doing very well. And he has this like small, I don't know if you like a psychotic episode or what you would call it, flashback, whatever, dramatic, whatever you want to call it, where he sees Annie's face on this random waitress, which could kind of look like her. Same hairstyle, white lady. And she tells him she's his number one fan. <laughs> He's just like, thank you. And then that's where the movie ends. Mighty kind of you. Okay, one thing. I thought was kind of interesting. So when he's having dinner with his publicist, she of course goes like, I would lose my, my literacy agency. If I didn't ask you, if you would write a book about your experience. Right. Which is like also like an interesting thing to know that like he went through the super traumatic thing, but it's something we do right now. Currently, even in still in society is like you go through the super traumatic thing and it's like, that's content, baby. Yeah. Time to make money. <laughs> Time to get that bag. If you guys were in a situation like that and you escaped, would you write some kind of a book about it and tell your tale? Yes, I like um, money. Yeah. <laughs> I would definitely do it too. Well, you write what you know, right? Yeah. 
That's sure. what they tell you in the biz. And also it's like a, you know, a surefire way to do that, but also bring awareness at the same time of like mental health and parasocial relationships and like check mm-hmm. in on people. So like, I, yeah, definitely. I think there's, except for reliving your trauma, but you're going to do that anyway. No one just walks away from something, you know? Right, right, right. Living it every day, baby. Yeah, literally. It keeps me up at night till two in the morning. You think I can't just write that shit? For real? <laughs> Yeah, so um, that's Misery. Uh, that's misery. Like I said, one of my favorite favorite movies, one of my favorite books. Do you guys have any closing closing thoughts on it? I got to give a slight confession that I've been holding in this whole time. Okay. As somebody, a little bit of a chunky lady with a garden and some livestock, there's sometimes her outfits hit. <laughs> they there are very some... Sarah Coden. Yeah, there was sometimes I was like, damn, that actually is kind of, and look, you 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 kind of want to be Annie Wilkes in a way. I mean, no, I really don't. But like in a way, I already <laughs> am her in the sense of like our lifestyle. I've just never killed babies or random people. <laughs> but the mental illness in the farm, I got them too checked off. <laughs> let me tell you. Note to self: Don't hang out around Sarah when it rains. Yeah, right. no, I like thunderstorms, and that that part was weird to me, where she's like. Like the thunder, I'm like cannot relate. Give yeah, me a thunderstorm. Love a good rain. Yeah. Can I? Can I also say that? Um. Oh shit! I had something to say. I'm actually misery is interesting to me because I'm kind of a weird person. Kind of. of. <sighs> You're right. I'm a very weird person in all things, <laughs> um, to my bones in my core, but also. When it comes to celebrities, I'm really odd in the sense of I don't want to sleep with celebrities. I just want to be their friend. Same. Yes, like, I understand like, that. Don't get me wrong. I love Adam Driver. There are moments I think Adam Driver is the hottest person on the planet. I'm like, he was put on this world to be in that Burberry ad. I get it. But no part of me is like, damn, I wish I could go home with Adam Driver. Like That feels icky to me. It feels yes. like thirsting after celebrities and i know everybody does it and it's not a judgment but to me it almost feels like like a sexual violation in a way that like my brain cannot do it i think it's because we realize they're humans yeah 100 sometimes people really um separate the human from the The art from the artist yes and i i I definitely agree with you. I'm not like that either. I don't even want to meet them most of the time. Yeah, most of the time I'm like, please don't. Like, like, it feels weird. Yeah. yeah, Because it's also like a weird power imbalance for us too, in the sense of like, there's no way that I can like, pretend that I don't know who you are. And then, <clears throat> oh my God, I just died. There's no way for me to pretend that okay. I don't know who you are. And also that puts you in a weird perspective of like being nice to me just because I'm someone who respects your work. And that also feels like incredibly gross to me. Yeah, I just want to like buy Matthew Lillard a pizza and like hang out and talk about. Yeah, be like just buy him a beer and be like, hey, dog, have a good night. And that's it. Like, I don't want to take a selfie with you. I don't want to do like. Yeah, exactly. That's why when like my my horror people who I like a lot go to horror cons, I don't usually pay for like a photo or anything because I'm like, I just. Like it's just a regular person, and I appreciate yeah, them. And I human. appreciate their media, but like, I don't obsess over them by any means. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> I okay. do. Yeah, go off. 
but Tom Holland could make a home in my throat, and I okay. would forever just like. To be fair, I would love to see Zendaya fight you. So I'm down. Me and Zendaya could share. Okay, I don't think she'd <laughs> want that, and I think she'd kick oh. your ass, and it'd be so she entertaining. Probably, to watch. She probably would, but yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I do. I think that however, we're kind of the odd ones out. Like, I think however, it's normal. I agree with it. However, yeah. I have horrible sexual fantasies over random dudes I see on Twitter. <laughs> and you expect me to not want to bang Tom Holland? Are you fucking I mean, kidding? listen, you got to do what you got to do. I'm just saying Sean from Mendes, own, If Sean Mendez decided he didn't want to be a bottom for once, me and Sean could, like, have a time. <laughs> That's a lot of convincing for two people, I'm just going to tell you. <laughs> and I, I think that you, your opinion is the norm. I think yeah, us yeah. being like, I don't know, they're just some regular dudes. It's like not the norm. Yeah. But also like you guys know how much I'm like obsessed with Taylor Swift. And I, I couldn't imagine her in a sexual manner whatsoever. Like I would love to be her best friend, but I wouldn't want to like bang Taylor Swift. Sure. So yeah. Like, but that's just me <laughs> entirely. Yeah, I will yeah, say. Yeah. I think it is like a it's like a a moral thing for me because like the only people who I've ever except for like my significant other been like damn I would sleep with them has been like porn stars but that's because they are in that space of being like I am sexy and I am sex and like so like that to my brain probably makes sense but like you know whoever like just being a movie star like they're not signing up for that so I think my brain automatically is like that's a person with a life who like doesn't want to be sexualized you know yeah i can see that too my i think i actually struggle with the like uh identifying someone as a human and moving on to the sexualizing them phase yeah i think we're like really similar in that way okay i don't know if this is on a similar wave of what you guys are talking about and god this is really random but like there's some human beings where I cannot imagine them having sex, and it's like disturbing sure. for me to think that they've had. That's sex. me for everyone. Everyone like, in my life is a Ken. Yeah. Everyone in my life. Everyone's Even a Ken. me. Yeah, yeah. You're a Ken. yeah. Like I, like I, like we talk about like sex capades and stuff, and in my. You cut out. Yeah, it's like not. It's like people are not sexual beings to me in the slightest. And it's it's probably traumatic for something that I went through, but oh fuck, it is. It's always it's the always trauma, the trauma. It? It's always the well. It's also weird because biologically, I think we're supposed to look at everyone like that, like how we're supposed to be like evaluating their like mating capabilities, mm. and like I don't do that in the slightest. Me either. Yeah, that's probably a trauma thing. You right, rip. Yeah, rip. <laughs> no, because like you know, I'd be like yo, yo, my friend, my friend Erie, she be fucking like. <laughs> <laughs> and then i like think of someone else and i'm like oh no oh god no <laughs> like i can tell people's riz like i, I have like a riz radar you like yeah. oh like they're charming like i can understand how they get people to date them or like all of this stuff but like for the most part it makes no sense to me at all where i'm like oh you have sex oh yeah like i totally forget oh, that yeah, about people thing yeah like when people are like oh we're like trying for a kid i'm like why would you tell people that <laughs> so it's, <laughs> that internet meme where it's like uh saying we're trying for a kid is admitting you'd be cream pieing, and i'm just like ew <laughs> literally but like that's and like that's just how i like think like and i like i never judge a person like live your life whatever the fuck but like to me like i'm like so it sounds weird to be like anti-sex because I'm not like I'm so pro ho. I want everyone to like 
get get what they want and do what they want and be happy with it but like for me i'm just like oh yeah i forget like you probably are gonna like leave this party tonight like party as if i go to parties or have ever gone to a party uh yes we frequent parties all the time and by parties we mean scream movie marathons (laughs) where it's just just the two of us yeah (laughs) Yeah. um but yeah like for me it's like weird where i'm like oh yeah like you like oh this dinner we're all going to like oh you guys are like gonna go home and have sex like that's that never crosses my mind ever but then it does for other people which is weird because it's so foreign to me that there are people who have probably thought that about me like oh you and your husband are probably gonna go home and it's like but like i've never thought of another person like that me either it's that that's definitely trauma yeah 100 <laughs> percent. fun oh the traumas also come over to this part of our podcast hey guys <laughs> welcome back <laughs> follows us but i think it's even weird more so in this movie where like she's this in love with an author yes like at least movie yeah. stars we kind of see them on tv so i guess that kind of denotes more of like a, a possibility to have feelings or sexualize or whatever this is an author I almost feel like I get that more. And let me, yes, because you're spending days, weeks reading this book that's their direct brainchild. You almost get to know them on a more personal level than you do a a movie star. Like Tom Holland didn't come up with Spider Man. Right. But he plays Spider Man and he does a great job. And you watch that movie for an hour and a half. Where, like, there are certain books that have taken me multiple nights, multiple days, multiple... I'm a really fast reader, so maybe that's not relatable. But, like, you get to know these characters, you get to know this person's style of writing. It's almost more easily romanticized. Because there are authors who have touched me in my core more than anyone in my life ever has. And I don't currently, but, like, when I was a kid, it was like oh, these emotions, this is the first time I'm feeling this emotion and having it being explained. And I owe that to this author who understood how I felt. It's kind of like when people get really weird about Taylor Swift because she released an emotional album every time someone, like as I was growing up, like she's the same, she's a little older than me, but like every album she releases was released in that time frame that she wrote that album in. So like, there are people who are my age who see her as like this older sister, even though they've never met her, but that's because she can talk to them so clearly. You know what I mean? Annie Wilkes was our first demisexual queen. Yeah. Yep. Yes, I absolutely know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I get where you're coming from. I just, I mean, um, you're yeah, a normal also, human. We I get just, it. Also, I think that I hate to do the gender thing in any way, shape, or form, but you're a man who loves men, and that typically be, is, like, really physical or, like, outward-facing. In a I way, wish I was a woman, so you don't know anything. Well, okay, but I also see the type of men you're into, and I'm telling you, dog. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm a man. That's just like whenever I was talking to you guys about my healthcare routine, I was like, please understand. Yeah. I am just a man. And you I could have think... been like, you could have been like, I use sandpaper on my face every day. And I would be like, yeah, okay, but you should. Yeah, that, I've heard that before for sure. <laughs> so um, I'm using this nine in one shampoo, conditioner, body wash, <laughs> lotion, sunscreen. <laughs> that is what I'm <laughs> 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 
<laughs> and when, and we wouldn't have been surprised. But I and I don't think that's a gender thing. It's kind of human specific, to be honest. But I think yeah. that. No, you're right. I definitely have just. I've never looked at a person and been like, oh, I'd sleep with them. It's like, oh, I've had a conversation. I trust this person or like I could be a little with them. So I think yeah. that's where like the author thing comes in, because authors can if you're a reader can speak to your emotions more so than you know, a random hot guy at the bar or whatever. Bars, yeah. party. Why do I pretend like I exist in society? <laughs> moral of the story, I am just a man. No, not <laughs> no. at all. No, the moral of the story is that you're just horny. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 25-7 every conceivable second of every <laughs> single day. <laughs> you gotta do what you gotta do. And I, yeah, I just think it's interesting. So this whole thing to me was like, this whole movie was crazy to me. Man, I've yeah. never. I feel weird about following celebrities on social media. Same. I've literally watched Dragula eight hundred times, and literally last week was the first time I started dra- uh, following the drag artists on Instagram because I felt weird. It feels yeah. weird. Yeah, it's 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 definitely an interesting you know thing to be in, and it's nice to know I'm not alone because I've I explain that to people all the time, and they're like, I was like, no, I definitely sleep with Margot Robbie, and I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, like, no. tight. I think that she'd be really fun to go shopping with or like, you know, eat some like wings with. But like, I don't know. Yeah, I just want to get a beer with the homies. Yeah, you know. Well, I mean, interesting perspective for me to hear. I won't lie because I've never. To be fair, I will give you one. I'll give you one. I would do what any I would do anything that Christina Ritchie wanted me to do. I don't care <laughs> what it is. Oh my if God. she came to me and asked me to do something for her, but she's the only one. I have a list of like 100. So, you know. Yeah, and even saying that, I literally went like, ew, I hated that I just said that out loud. But it is true, I just, but that's just because I love her. She could ask me to, like, you know, kill a person. I'd be like, you know, Chris, that's not, not, that's not my moral. I don't really want to. I'd be like, well, okay, you know what? <laughs> yes, we're Whatever doing it. I'll be there. But that's it. And that's it. And, and that's, that's it. it. Oh my gosh. Yeah, Misery is such an interesting movie. Uh, sorry for the spoilers. Uh, definitely go watch it and tell me what you think fits because i'm telling you dog i could rock a couple wool dresses i'm just saying (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was misery that was my favorite movie and thank you guys for everyone that listens stay on arcadia